Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. This is another special episode to follow up a three-part series on the Ohio Joint Medicaid Oversight Committee hearing on October 27th. This one will have Medicaid Director Maureen Corcoran and Ohio Pharmacist Association Executive Director Ernie Boyd. Thanks for listening and enjoy. The committee now would like to call Ernie Boyd, Executive Director of the Ohio Pharmacist Association. Chairman Romanchuk, Ranking Member Antonio, and members of the Joint Medicaid Oversight Committee, I am Ernest Boyd, Executive Director of the Ohio Pharmacists Association. We greatly appreciate all of your efforts to create a more equitable payment system for prescription drugs. Unfortunately, despite all these efforts, the pharmacy benefit managers continue to game the payment system, as you've heard in earlier testimony. They remain quite profitable. Drug manufacturers simply ask the PBMs how much of a rebate they have to pay to be placed on the formulary or list of drugs allowed. And uh, former FDA commissioner Scott Gottlieb characterized the rebate payments as uh, Mr. Uh, Chacha has said as kickbacks. The manufacturers increase their prices to account for the rebate. So if the PBM says that they want a standard 30% rebate, the manufacturer simply builds it into the price in the next year, which we as pharmacists have no control whatsoever. The pricing scheme ensures that local pharmacies remain unable to accurately calculate their reimbursement, which I realized the problem that was uh, that was had by earlier folks who were testifying. It was probably 20 years ago when I was before one of these committees, and the question from the senator I remember quite clearly. Mr. Boyd, please explain drug pricing. So I started. And about one minute and 20 seconds later, the senator said, well, obviously, Mr. Chairman, the witness doesn't want to answer the question. And uh, I choked a little bit. Uh, The pharma people I was fighting laughed quite heartily. And uh, the chairman said, Ernie, I still want to hear what you have to say. So I tried to explain everything that Antonio and the others have explained. But my point being that since that time, it's gotten worse. In that time, I couldn't get through rebates and manufacturers and wholesalers and all the rest of it. Now we have, well, you see, the PBM does this and they do that. But I have to salute you, and I mean it sincerely. I think that what you did by going to a single PBM will do more to put things in your control where it should be and in uh, the director's control within the Medicaid program than any other single thing I've seen in my 33 years of lobbying. And uh, that is not helium asking for something in the future. I'm just saying truly, why do I feel that way? For this reason, that when you have a simple system, it is more difficult to take from that system, okay? When I was a real pharmacist back in the 70s, Medicaid and all others, the average price was $5. The cost of product was two and the fee was three, sometimes four if you were lucky. Then PBMs came in and they came in because we were the first 
health profession to computerize. And so in the 80s, we were 70% of claims volume, but only 7% of the cost of, of health care. And so quickly, everybody adopted computers, and PBMs kind of slipped in. Originally, they were the phone company. They didn't listen into your calls. They just transferred. Here's what the contract says, AWP minus 20 uh, plus a $4 fee, and they paid it. That was it. But then they figured out if they listen into the phone call, they could start making some money. So they tapped in and they said, hey, uh, physician, uh, Dr. Huffman, I'd like to uh, change your prescription from what you wrote to the one that we get a bigger rebate for. And they began to do that in the 1980s. And they liked that whole concept. And I found it obnoxious because at the time I was also a hospital pharmacist. And I knew that in hospitals we had formularies, but we drove formularies by clinical decisions, not just by money. In the community pharmacy, however, it was almost exclusively driven by money, and there were many times where I would fight on behalf of the patient to get them the drug that was prescribed because it was better for them. Better for them. And yet, much of the time, they'd say, we're still not going to pay it, so they had to pay cash. But when drugs are $5, they could do it. But when they're 26000 it's a little harder. So, apologize, going back to my... <laughs> Testimony, the manufacturers increase their prices to account for the rebates. Uh, the pricing scheme ensures that the local pharmacies remain unable to calculate it. And we are the only entity, and I stand by this, in the whole process being told their reimbursement should involve no profit. And that can be seen even, I'm afraid, going back in Medicaid for years, where they do a cost of dispensing survey that looks at everything down to our underwear. What does it cost us to fill a prescription? In their last survey, it was $10 is what it costs us, approximately. And yet, in many cases, we're paid $1. And certainly not Director Corcoran, but previous Medicaid directors, when I'd walk across the street and say, we, paying us 75 cents or $1.50 or whatever for this fee is in, unreasonable, They'd say, well, boy, we'd really love to help you out. I'd say, well, look at your survey that you've done since the 1980s. This is not new stuff. And they say, boy, you know, it's so tough. You need to go across the street and talk to those guys because they've got the money and we don't. We're just really sorry. And we go back and forth. And I became hated by governor since uh, Dick Celeste. And that's fine. But um, I'm just saying that they needed money then. They need money now. We weren't lying the first time. We're not lying this time. But this time, somebody else is taking the money that you were told we were being paid. The other thing I'd point out is that pharmacies are the ones in this whole process who are providing jobs in the state of Ohio. Our pharmacists have shown you that during COVID, we're now doing 70% of all COVID vaccinations. Do you know 20 years ago, until we worked with you, it was illegal for a pharmacist to give anybody a shot of any kind? And we fought with some of our good friends in the medical community and, and luckily won on flu shots and then it expanded to this. And so we provide jobs in local cities in Ohio. We have direct provider services to small communities and large and we're the only provider who provides generally free services, nights, weekends, and holidays. Now that free happens to be paid somewhat by the profits off our regular drugs. The pricing fiasco 
engineered by PBMs is literally destroying our network of pharmacies that largely contributed to the widespread COVID, as I've said, easy access to flu shots, and the most accessible health professional. Um, it's very hard for pharmacies to stay open when PBMs are paying such low reimbursement that pharmacists make little or no profit on a large number of prescriptions. We're not looking to totally remove the enormous profits of PBMs in the pharmaceutical industry. But we want to be sure that pharmacists who are providing free advice, care to local patients, that we provide good jobs in local communities, that we be recognized as professionals and be paid properly. This is critical for the health of Ohioans. It's become clear that Medicaid PBMs often combine clawbacks with other PBM programs from other government programs. And these clawbacks sometimes take, I said in here, 50%. Yesterday I heard of 80% of a pharmacy's profit being taken back from a clawback. And many times the pharmacies are not aware of these takebacks until months after the dispensing of the medication. The clawbacks, along with direct and uh, DRR fees, combined to make a virtually impossible business situation for Ohio's pharmacists. No business can sign a blank contract, which is essentially what pharmacies have with PBMs, allowing them to pay any price they want. They're now couching reimbursement cuts into a generic effective rate. And again, these rates are impossible to calculate in the confusing language allows the pharmacy, PBMs to pay below cost. We are looking forward to that single PBM. We are looking forward to the state of Ohio creating a, what we consider, and I think the state will, a fair reimbursement system that will involve the use of NADAC, which Mr. Chacha mentioned, the national average drug cost for product cost, plus the fee determined by the state through their own state survey. Since product cost surveys of invoices are conducted by CMS, I believe weekly, these prices are the most realistic. There can be argument over should it be paid at NADAC or above or below, but at least we all have a standard. The standard used to be AWP, and then lots of jokes about it back in the 70s and 80s, ain't what's paid, and it was destroyed. But at least it gave us all a basis from where to start. This NADAC will help. Attached to my written testimony, I've included additional information from CMS regarding this. Um, although this ends my written testimony, I'm going to do what my fellow lobbyists working with OPA hate, and that's for me to go a bit off script. Um, what this really is about is patient safety. When you deal with cuts of the level we've had, you have not just independence hurting. You have chain pharmacies. I implore you to please read the Board of Pharmacies workload uh, study that they did and they have now formed a workload advisory committee that just met October 14th. And the reason I ask you to look at that is there are about 174 pages of pharmacists mainly in chain pharmacies saying how much they uh, uh, dislike their jobs. 51% of pharmacists would not be a pharmacist today according to a recent Purdue survey throughout the country. I advocate that it's largely due to the 1958 management style of many of our chains. Uh, what could solve it quickly is if the chains could hire more pharmacists. There are plenty available. 
But what I hear is we don't have enough money to do that. But if you read what you're seeing before the Board of Pharmacy, you'll find out that the pharmacists are told, keep filling 500 prescriptions per shift, but oh, by the way, do 30 flu shots. Oh, by the way, do 30 more COVID shots. And if anybody walks in that needs a COVID test, do that. I had a young lady call me from a chain two years ago who was in tears. And she said, Ernie, I, I think I'm going to get fired. I said, what'd you do? She said, well, uh, my chain bought uh, an independent, a big one, and we have so many prescriptions, I'm going to kill somebody if I keep filling them. So at 2 o'clock today, I, I locked the pharmacy and kicked everybody out and uh, uh, told my staff to stay, and we just filled prescriptions, and I'm still not caught up, and it's 6 p.m. And I said, well, good. I, I hope you're fired and take a new job, because this is insane. Well, I get calls like that all the time, but the Board of Pharmacy documented it. And when they say that pharmacy reimbursement, PBM reimbursement, is driving these crazy uh, numbers of hours and other things, uh, that's, it's got to stop. The other thing is the chains are proposing in some legislatures to take away dispensing from a six-year doctor of pharmacy educated pharmacist and give it to a high school technician, high school graduate pharmacy technician and just have them dispense because the profit would be far higher. When the Chicago Tribune took the issue of workforce seriously and presented prescriptions that would kill the patient if the two were taken together, 50% of the pharmacists missed it which made me kind of ashamed of my profession, but luckily the news people took it the other way and they said, why? And the why was because they were filling too fast. They weren't able to stop and slow down, and that's what we're seeing and largely driven by money here. I'll just add two other things that are not my testimony. One of them is extremely personal. There was a pharmacy across the street. Um, I somewhat hesitate to speak about it and even name it, but um, it is what it is. Uh, I helped the young man open it. He was in his 20s when he was looking at it. And uh, he was doing quite well, but he really enjoyed serving the Medicaid population downtown. It's where the peanut shop is now. He enjoyed serving all you guys and your staff. And um, there was a major Medicaid fee cut, and he took a hit. And then uh, the state of Ohio, in all their wisdom, chose to have all the state employees get their prescriptions through a PBM mail order service which we predicted was going to be higher cost, um, the individual uh, ended up uh, committing suicide. So um, it's deeper than my lobbying. I was angry about it then. I'm angry today. And I apologize to you, but I, I can't talk about it without losing it. Uh, at the end of the day, we need to be sure for public safety that there is proper reimbursement through these PBMs. We need to figure out how to fix it. It's a problem we all face. My apologies for losing it. I'll be happy to take questions. Thank, Thank you, you very Mr. much. Boyd. Unless you ask me too much about what I just mentioned. <laughs> Are there questions? Seeing none, thank you for your testimony. Thank you. The committee now would like to call Director Corcoran from the Ohio Department of Medicaid, if you're ready, ma'am.
Good Mr. afternoon. Chairman, members of the committee. Um, I don't have a prepared um, testimony. I, I think I probably will have to pay Antonio for some of the, um, uh, the marketing he did for us. But um, on a serious note, um, the most um, dramatic moment for me during the budget two years ago was at the end of the conference committee and the governor looked at me and he said, well, we didn't propose a single PBM, should we do this? And I looked at him and I said, governor, I have become convinced. Those were exactly the words. And it was because of all the things that you've heard today um, that, you know, there isn't any perfect system. Um, if we can kind of try a different way and try to make learn some lessons from it, um, that I think is worth worth the energy. And so that is what we are undertaking, and that is why the design um, that we have with the PBM and the separate pricing. Remember that I don't know that that got mentioned today. The separate pricing entity will allow us to. Um, eliminate a great deal, if not all, conflict of interest um, so that we should be able to see these things with much greater transparency. And I'm glad to answer questions if you'd like. Are there questions for the director? Representative Lips. Director Corcoran, thank you very much for being with us today. Um, and I would like to thank you for the relationship you and I have been able to form because four years ago, uh, that wasn't a very good relationship. Um, I would like to say it was your fault, but it really wasn't. It was my fault, so that's okay. Uh, we're, you've worked so hard and tried so hard to help me understand the system, and, and I just want to tell you that I believe you've, you're working very hard to make the agency transparent and to move a big ship. So, first of all, thank you. Second of all, we've heard all this talk about a single PBM, and uh, I, I'm still not 100% convinced it's going to work, but it's, I'm convinced we have to go down this path. So in two years, we fix it again, and we keep molding this thing. My question to you is, when do you think that we will have implementation of the single PBM model? Mr. Chairman, uh, Representative Lips, the full implementation of the entire new, as we call it, next generation, the whole plan is July of next year. Representative Lips. Senator Antani. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Director, uh, for your testimony. I think it's actually, uh, from memory serves, it's been a year since we had the single PBM discussion the last time uh, in this committee uh, down, down one floor here. And so, you know, here we sit now a year later, uh, a year closer to uh, the implementation of, of the single PBM. So as it stands now, you know, what are your goals for the single PBM? And since the theme of today is clawback, are you going to address that? And if so, how? Mr. Chairman, uh, Senator, so the goals for the single PBM, um, first and foremost, is eliminating the conflicts of interest and dramatically increasing the amount of transparency. Um, I also think that an added benefit is what was discussed about um, our commitment to do a survey of actual acquisition cost for pharmacies so that we'll have a 
benchmark that the pharmacies will have confidence in. Um, so I, I think there's there's just a lot of uh, you know the separate pricing, so that we'll you know be able to have a a reference point that will not be contaminated with any of these other business considerations. So I mean I think it's just a variety of um, you, you know and you know as I've said said before and Senator I know you're well aware of this. You know, any system change like this is going to have pros and cons. You know, any system, you know, no system is perfect. We're going to have bumps along the way. But I think the design, and this is being looked at very heavily by other states, the design is really intended to try to get at some of these fundamental issues that have been identified. Senator Antani. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Director. And, and my apologies for asking two questions in one. And so what about the second part of the question, which is, you know, will the clawback be addressed in any way insofar as your plans? Yeah, Mr. Chairman, um, Senator Ria, thank you for the question. We we let, um, you know, the JMOC uh, uh, leadership know that we are looking at that. We're not prepared to talk in depth about it today, but um, the the comment that I've made to a number of people is, you know, we we certainly do believe that the single PBM is the right direction to go with this, but along the way, we're not just going to ignore issues that have to be dealt with. Representative West. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, Director. Uh, and I don't have, I'm, from the very beginning, I didn't have to build a relationship like LIPS, so I, I do appreciate that. But let me ask you, um, uh, along the line with what Senator Antoni spoke of, in terms of addressing the callback issues uh, from this point to July, um, and you've heard the example of, you know, the $100 and then the callback of $60. Have you been seeing in the Medicaid, uh, are, are we getting reimbursed for that clawback that is happening? Mr. Chairman, Representative, so there, there's a couple of pieces to that question. One piece um, that was talked about a little bit earlier is how does the department set its capitation rates? What do we pay? We do not pay, we do not set our capitation rates to the plans based on their reported cost or information. Okay, we, we don't, so I mean, we collect that, that, but we don't set the rates based on that for medications, for pharmacy. Um, the uh, actuarial group that we work with looks at all the different sort of national um, drug pricing information, NADAC, you know, the various things that Antonio talked about, and then sets the rates based on that. So it, no matter what happens, okay. that does, but that doesn't fully answer the question that you're asking, and that is what we're looking a little bit more at and not, not quite ready to give you a report. But um, we are looking at what, what then do we how much information do we have? What is the story that that information can tell us? And then one more question regarding this single PBM. Um, 
Initially, I was thinking the, C the single PBMs were going to be with the managed care companies. Each of them would have a single PBM. That's what I thought. And then, the, of course, the onus is on them. By the state covering the one single PBM, would that mean more cost to the state? Um, Mr. Chairman, uh, Representative, um, as again, I think was referenced earlier, we have projected several hundred million dollars in cost savings annually um, for all the reasons that you've kind of had laid out here. Um, it, we have structured the PBM using um, federal managed care authorities that will give us um, it, it, not trying to get into all the technicalities of it, but it is not a simple fee-for-service arrangement is probably the most important thing to say. It is a prepaid ambulatory health plan, technically what's considered a managed care plan by the federal government, so that we will be able to look at value-based arrangements and you know, other kinds of innovative approaches um, as would be the case with a, with a managed care plan today. Senator Thomas. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you, Director Carker, and I'm glad to hear uh, we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, I'm a big, strong supporter of data-driven uh, research that speaks to, you know, going forward. And uh, I was extremely impressed with a lot of the testimonies I heard, but I was, all, I was very impressed with uh, the information coming from uh, um, Mr. Antonio, is it? Cha-cha. Cha-cha. <laughs> I was extremely impressed with uh, his, his testimony. It was very, very informative, and clearly the research work was being done. And I was also glad to hear that he, based on what he saw, what, he, what he's seen watching you doing, or what we're doing in Ohio, I should say, that we're going in the right direction. So my question is, is that given the fact that you had such a serious, serious problem to fix, you know, fixing this whole um, Medicaid issue with the state of Ohio, are we, uh, well, uh, let me ask you this, is this, are you getting your, 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 your support from individuals like the gentleman that testified? Uh, are we getting it? Are you getting that advice from him, or from that organization, if you will, or organizations like that? Or is that how you're basing your your effort to fix this problem, Mr. Chairman, um, Representative? We, or excuse me, Senator Thomas, we um, have put a great deal of energy into um, listening and working with and talking with hundreds and hundreds of different stakeholders and organizations. That, that, is where, um, that is where the changes that we're proposing in the whole program, that's where it came from, is interviewing consumers, facilitated uh, interviews with consumers about how they felt about the services and programs um, more than um, 60 or more than 60 statewide trade associations like the OPA mm -hmm. that we've met with, listened to, gotten feedback on. So we, we are taking in and using very seriously um, all the input that we can get and we continue to have that uh, pathway open. We continue, you know, we just 
sure. tell people, you know, that the, that mailbox is still being staffed and used. We just we want to keep hearing whatever questions or comments people have as we go along. Senator Thomas. Just uh, do, you, do you feel like you have the flexibility to do your job in this area? Are you, are you, are you okay with uh, the latitude that you have to try to get things, these things done? Um, uh, Mr. Mr. Chairman, um, Senator, I um, feel incredibly blessed by an incredible team at the department and an incredible group of organizations that have now been selected to work with us. Um, you know, I, I across the board, the, the new managed care organizations, the new PBM, the new Ohio Rise vendor, you know, in, incredible folks in our department and stakeholders across the state. Um, I feel like we have a lot of support and we're not, we're trying to be very realistic with people and ask them for their patience and we know we'll have some bumps, but um, I, I think that we have managed to convey honestly to people that the door is open, we keep the door open, and we're not hesitant about taking a hold of a problem when we see it. Okay, thank you. Representative Holmes. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you, Director. And you answered most of the question. I was interested in what unique controls or, or visibility or leverage you had as Medicaid on what we heard on and your visibility on it. You answered that. Just an open-ended question then is with a single PBM, maybe now is the time where we can establish some really firm transparency and some finite controls and oversight that you can have as Medicaid on monitoring price rates. What your thoughts on that, ma'am? Mr. Chairman, that is absolutely part of the objective. Um, and I would just note that today already we do have a pharmaceutical dashboard on our website that has all the information about the pharmaceutical services within the Medicaid program. You can divide it up around different parts of the state. You can look at it by managed care plan. You can look at you know, administrative fees versus dispensing fees. Um, so we have taken one big step with that, and um, we are, you know, very much looking forward to having greater visibility and transparency. Representative Lips. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Director, you've heard a lot today about clawbacks. Um, and that we've passed legislation to prevent it and that now all of a sudden there's some new take back program whether you call it callback or not. The data you're collecting today, can you tell if it's pre-clawback or post-clawback? Um, Mr. Chairman, um, and I think you and I chatted a little bit about this um, earlier, the the industry standard, as I understand it, and all of the reporting requirements that we operate under with, say, the federal Medicaid program, looks at a claim, and that was, I think it was Dr. Geyer who mentioned first, the issue of how claim gets defined. Um, all, the in, the, the, all the machinery within this supply chain looks at the claim 
as the point when the reporting stops. In other words, um, you know, when mom goes to the pharmacy to get her inhaler and the pharmacy is paid X amount of money, that is the cost. That is the claim. And all these other things happen outside of that claim. And that therein lies all of what you've been hearing about. So um, we, you know, we are looking, we obviously we have a lot of claims information, but we are also looking at a variety of other kind of information to see how much visibility we can get into it. Representative Lips. Thank you. Well, if that's the case, does Medicaid keep track of the planned medical loss ratios? Yes, uh, Mr. Chairman. And if you do, um, Representative is, Lips. I'm sorry, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, is there any way to tell if that data is inflated, Mr. Chairman, Representative? Um, that is um, that is a really, really complicated question. We we have time. <laughs> um, sorry, we don't. <laughs> Um, let me, I guess let me um, focus on a couple of the kind of key pillars here. Um, the key pillars are um, whatever is spent in the drugs, pharmaceuticals, is considered part of the, the service claims. So these are all being counted within the medical loss ratio. The rates are set representative of the industry. Um, beyond that, I, you know, I, I can't go, at this point, I can't go any sort of deeper than that in terms of what effect, if any, this has on the medical loss ratio. I just, I just don't know. Thank you. Are there further questions? Uh, seeing none, Director, we're going to pivot a little bit as per our agenda. We'd like you to provide some insight on some of the issues brought forward at the last JMOC meeting, if you would, concerning Ohio uh, Medicaid providers and the MCOs, please. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman, um, members of the committee. So um, what we uh, did at the last meeting was to take keep a, a list of all the different issues that were raised throughout all the testimony. Um, I'm going to give you just a couple of comments, and then uh, Stephen Alexander is going to give you kind of a, a run-through of that or an overview of that uh, in a more kind of specific way. Um, I, I would like to say that when we look at all of the com concerns that were raised, there are a few themes that I want to just mention. Obviously, there was a lot about provider disputes. We have an entire new process that are not new, but significantly enhanced provider complaint process that is part of the new contract, including provider councils being required for, for each managed care plan so that there is a uh, a, di a, a, a formalized place for dialogue and a connection to their quality improvement work that's, you know, part of their, their normal business. Um, the fiscal intermediary um, addresses a number of the kinds of questions around, well, 
did they get paid timely? How much were they owed? You know, a lot of those kinds of things will look very different with the fiscal intermediary. You know, in, in, you know, as you know, today we get the the encounter claims from the managed care plans, but it can be six months before the data set is really complete. You know, it takes because we get it last, if you will. So by getting it first and then getting it last, you know, we're having the whole cycle, if you will, we will know when did a provider submit their their claim and when did they get paid. And today we can't do that other than by investigating. Now we do that, and I would say, you know, to you and to all the anyone listening, you know, please continue if there are individual complaints to send us the information at Medicaid at medicaid.ohio.gov, and then what we do is research each of them with the managed care plan. So we'll ask them to show us the data, we look at it, um, and we're glad to do that because um, it is, you know, it helps us understand and it helps get to the bottom of it. Um, and certainly the provider network module also gets at some of the concerns about the extensive administrative burden on providers. Um, but for a, uh, we, we are prepared to give you a little more of a run through of the specifics if you'd like. Mr. Alexander. Good afternoon, Mr. Chairman, members of the Joint Medicaid Oversight Committee. I'm Stephen Alexander, the Director of Legislative Affairs for the Department of Medicaid. And uh, it's a pleasure to be able to be here and, and run through some of the specifics. Uh, and also, I'm, I'm personally very excited that the fiscal intermediary is kind of getting its moment in the sun. It's, it's up to this point, it's been this wonky supporting actor kind of in the background as we've gone from talking about all the other ones. Uh, sometimes multiple times, and so it is really important. It's going to be very crucial in the new system, so it's nice to kind of, you know, be able to talk about it a little bit. But in uh, response to some of the things that we heard last time, uh, the first organization you guys heard from was the Ohio Visiting Nurses Association. The main takeaway from that, of course, was just low reimbursement rates and the difficulty in, you know, attracting and retaining workforce. And that's certainly something that we are aware of. We have to work with the General Assembly when we contemplate any kind of rate increases. You know, we talked a lot in this committee in the past about how any rate increases that we propose in the executive budget, which is when they're typically contemplated, have to be within the JMOT growth rate. Uh, in the last few budgets, to stay within that, we have been a little bit limited in how many we've been able to include and bake into our executive uh, budget in House Bill 166. I think transportation providers were the only ones we were able to include a rate increase for, and they hadn't had one in a very long time. In House Bill 110, it was these kinds of long-term care providers where we uh, included, I think is the only provider type, uh, a rate increase that we were proposing in the executive budget. And then, of course, you know, the General Assembly added to that, and we worked to implement that as quickly as possible. The slated go-live date is November 1st for that, uh, and I think we emailed uh, JMOC staff earlier to let you all know about that, that it was coming. Uh, and we've contacted stakeholders as well, kept them engaged regularly, uh, not claiming that it's, you know, sufficient, but that is what we got through the budget process and that's what we worked to implement. So it is nice to see that we are able to increase the rates somewhat. And then, of course, there's the ARPA um, HCBS funding stream that's coming from the federal government through the American Rescue Plan Act. 
that we're working with the General Assembly to implement as well, and I think we've recently had uh, an update, but of course it's far from final. We do anticipate workforce and provider relief payments are going to be a big part of that conversation too. Uh, the next organization you heard from was the Ohio Healthcare Association, and there were several specific issues that were raised. First one I'd like to talk about was that one MCO is paying out-of-network providers 60% of the fee-for-service rate for hospice providers, even though the provider agreement requires that fee-for-service essentially be the, the floor. And there's, there's one thing in there that isn't quite accurate because the fee-for-service is only required to be the floor for nursing facility services. It's not the floor for most Medicaid services, so there can be some negotiation um, elsewhere. Now, we did still reach out to the managed care plan in question to sort of ask about this and found out that they had actually exempted hospice providers from this out-of-network 60% fee-for-service uh, reimbursement policy. So hospice providers should be getting at least fee-for-service, even if they're out-of-network uh, in these situations. So that behavior shouldn't be occurring right now. Uh, and, of course, if it is, you know, please let us know. And then uh, additionally, we also reached out to all the plans, some of our long-term care staff and managed care staff, and worked with them to kind of develop a uniform set of billing payment and uh, payment processes for hospice providers. So there should be a greater deal of uniformity for this provider type right now. Again, it wasn't a mandate in through like the provider agreement or a bill passing or anything like that. But we just worked collaborative, collaboratively with the plans to try to uh, get that buy-in from them. So. The next issue that was raised was that when an individual is in kind of the, uh, the MAGI population, it's modified adjusted gross income, there's kind of an end date to their nursing facility stay before they either have to be transitioned safely into the community or moved into a, like an age-blind disabled or ABD population and then they can stay in the long-term care setting. And, you know, the assertion was that oftentimes the plan simply won't do either, they'll just stop paying the nursing facility provider. And so certainly this is something that shouldn't be happening. Any specific instances of that, again, please let us know through the complaint process and we will investigate it. Though I will say that these oftentimes are complex cases. Sometimes these individuals were homeless prior to going into the nursing facility, so it can be difficult to transition them safely to a community setting. Uh, but the provider and the plan are expected to work together to still do that. And I'd also add, you know, in our new procurement, one other thing that is sort of included as a new requirement is that the managed care plans be considering social determinants of health like housing, like homelessness, and partnering with community organizations and doing those kinds of things so hopefully that they are better equipped to be able to make these kinds of transitions. And uh, Chairman Romanchuk, that was actually your language in, the, in House Bill 166 that required that to be part of the procurement. And so that's one of the reasons that we're optimistic that that is going to be getting better in the future too. But still, if we hear instances of that happening, please let us know. We also have state staff who work through the, it's called the Home Choice Program. One of the things that they do is help transition individuals back into the community. So we also have state staff who can assist with that transition too. So any situations like that, again, please let, let us know. And then the final thing specific that was raised was that when an individual transitions from a home and community-based setting to a long-term care facility setting, their patient liability changes, but the plans are supposedly slow in reporting that, and as a result, people are keeping more of their money in 
they're maybe not supposed to, and that could jeopardize their, their Medicaid eligibility. So we looked into this as well, and this really is more of a system of, uh, or a function of the public health emergency, rather than any part of inaction on the plan's part. So everyone on this committee probably knows that during the public health emergency, we're not permitted to disenroll individuals from Medicaid except in specific situations. Further guidance from CMS actually clarifies we're not allowed to adversely impact their benefit package either. This includes raising their patient liability. So if their patient liability isn't being increased when they transition from an HCBS setting, home and community-based services setting, to a nursing facility setting, that is a function of the PHE and COVID guidance from the federal government as opposed to any inaction on the part of a, a managed care plan. And as for jeopardizing an individual's Medicaid eligibility, as I just said, we can't disenroll them right now anyway. So nobody's Medicaid eligibility should be jeopardized as a result of this. And then the final thing that he raised, this isn't a specific, but more of a general comment, was that ODM should be more active in addressing systemic issues involving MCOs. And I, I didn't even go back to our managed care staff to ask for a few examples. I came up with four on my own uh, in preparing these remarks and just a few quick ones where we actually have done that is the unified preferred drug list where the managed care plans are no longer able to maintain their own preferred drug lists. We have set standard one that all the plans must use. Uh, another example was during House Bill 166 there was a stakeholder group um, complaining that they have a hard time getting prior authorization approved timely for people to be able to transition into home health services from, say, like a hospital setting, and they wanted the turnaround time on those prior authorization approvals or denials to be 48 hours. That language didn't make it into House Bill 166, but we did add it to the provider agreement to make that the requirement of all our managed care plans, addressing a systemic issue. So we weren't hands-off there. Uh, still another example is additional oversight and transparency when it comes to preferred contracting methods, sometimes called, you know, could be sole source. And I'll talk a little bit more about that when I get to the OAIM section, but that's another example. And then the final one was providers brought us some concerns, I believe in 2020, about inconsistent uh, clinical review of inpatient detox claims when an individual reports to a hospital setting. And so we looked into that, and it was, as the director said, where we investigate. It was a huge lift to get the providers to submit us claims so that we could look at them, find out would fee-for-service have approved them, and what's the common link, reaching out to the plan to find out what clinical criteria are you using. And the end result of that was, again, a provider agreement amendment where we standardized the clinical criteria and stated that if, it, if it's at least here through the ASAM criteria, then that's the, the level it can rise in order to be approved. So that was a lot of work and it would have been much easier if we had the claims up front. Again, that's something fiscal intermediary is going to let us do. Or rather than having to go to the providers and have them submit a, you know, claims to us that they've already submitted to the MCOs, we'll already have it by virtue of having the fiscal intermediary in place. So again, not taking a hands-off approach there. Um, through OAMS, we heard some some complaints regarding the managed care plans not consistently following 5160-10 of the administrative code. And there seemed to be a bit of a misunderstanding on just fee-for-service versus managed care and, and how they function. Not everything in OAC is followed to the letter by the managed care plans. They have some flexibility for things like reimbursement rates, for example. 
uh, they can contract and pay higher than fee-for-service or lower than fee-for-service, so they don't follow OAC rates necessarily for each thing there. And it, the same is true of their provider panel in the first place. Fee-for-service is any willing provider. Managed care plans just have to have access, reasonable access to the service itself. So there seemed to be a little bit of a misconception there. And then that leads us into the, the, the big concern that they raised, which was sole source contracting. And I uh, wanted to point out something that we have done in the past where sole source contracting still can occur, but we did increase our line of sight and oversight over it. There is a new uh, form and assessment that managed care plans have to do before entering into those kinds of contractual relationships with providers. So again, they're still allowed to do it, but they have to fill out this form and some of the complaint or some of the questions that are on it include they have to describe how they're going to ensure that its preferred contracting uh, provider gives enough supply to the beneficiaries to be able to meet the need. They have to describe the remedies for the beneficiary that they have to put in place if that single provider is unable to meet the need. So we basically make them tell us up front, hey, if this fails, what's plan B? And then they also have to give us a detailed capacity analysis throughout each region of the state of Ohio. So rather than just looking at it statewide, they have to look at each region and, and articulate to us in a detailed capacity analysis, how are you going to meet the need throughout the state, throughout each region of the state? Um, they also have to provide a detailed plan on how the care coordination is going to work with this single vendor. So how are they going to work with the care coordinator or maybe the primary care physician? Like they have to give a detailed analysis there so that nobody's dropping the ball on the overall care coordination for the individual that they're serving. And they also have to, again, this is just a few examples of the things that are on this form, and, and I'm happy to, to share that with the committee, but they also have to let us know how they're going to let beneficiaries know about this single vendor as well so that people aren't surprised. And then the final point I want to make on sole source there is that since we've adopted this form and, and this new requirement, there, has, there haven't been any new sole source contracts entered into, but again, they are still allowed. And we also heard from uh, the witness that the Medical Care Advisory Committee, a committee that we have with our providers to find out what their experience is like in the managed care program, has failed to you know, address this issue sufficiently. But the form I just described is a direct result of those kinds of conversations and also with legislative conversations that we've had with you all. So we have taken action uh, on this issue as well and, again, haven't been hands-off. And then um, I think those were really the, the big issues that we heard from some of the providers who testified. Uh, I guess we're happy to, to answer any questions. I'm not going to pretend everything is, is perfect. As the director was talking about with fiscal intermediary, it will really help to actually have the claims themselves so that we can respond more quickly and efficiently to these kinds of provider disputes. It is difficulty lacking that transparency to do that quickly right now, given the inconsistent access to the data that we have. Senator Thomas. Thank you. Thank you, sir, for your testimony. Uh, the gentleman that testified the last time around uh, that talked about a lot of the things that uh, he said that there was uh, problems between the provider and the managed care, there was a disconnect of some sort. I, I don't recall who that, I forget his name, but he testified for a long time. Uh, has there been any communications with that individual since he testified between Department of Medicaid and that individual in terms of trying to fix some of those concerns that he articulated? 
So, um, Mr. Chairman, Senator Thomas, if, if it's who, who I who I'm thinking of, I don't know if there's any specific, been any specific outreach, but I believe it was a provider association that we yes, have an ongoing relationship with. So are we, we try very hard to like make sure that there is an open line of communication with all the provider groups. Uh, we, we will, okay. yeah, we're, we're accessible to them and we always want to address any systemic issues they're raising. Uh, but we did on a lot of these sort of check if there were general issues with our complaint dispute resolution tracking system that we have, I reached out to those individuals and said, have we gotten any complaint like, and then I briefly described it. And there were some of them where we had, and, and there were a few where we hadn't. So uh, any, again, any, any of those, we, we, we do depend on provider feedback. It's one of the deficiencies, actually, where we're currently over-reliant on provider feedback in order to be able to track and the trends that are going on in the managed care space in order to be able to look at potential contract amendments that need to be made okay. in the future. All right. yeah. Thank you. Are there further questions? Just real one quick one for me. Uh, the president of VNA, she also brought up uh, the slow pay issue, and you may have already addressed it, but in case you didn't, would you mind uh, um, addressing that uh, again, please? And, uh, Mr. Chairman, when you say, say the slow pay issue, are you talking about managed care plans being slow to pay? Yes, that's what that was her allegation. Okay. Well, this is probably another issue, Mr. Chairman, where um, the fiscal intermediary is a great example of something that is going to help. Uh, when we talk to provider stakeholder groups about it, we tout the ability for us to see much sooner the actual encounter data rather than waiting for the plans to self-report it. So you'll recall when the pandemic hit, we were asked several legislative inquiries about utilization data and we didn't know yet because we had to wait several months to get a, an accurate picture of it. We're going to be able to know much sooner what's occurring. And so uh, one thing the fiscal intermediary really does is it, it minimizes the ability for plans to delay payment and it also better enables us to enforce prompt pay requirements. So that is something that I think in the future will improve. Well, thank you for that answer. But keep in mind, there's still several months um, before that's completely up and running. So in the meantime, we want to make sure that if there's slow pay occurring, that the department is addressing those issues with those individual uh, providers. I don't know that there are, there are slow pay. There's slow pay happening, but if there is, we'd, we'd like those to be addressed before that fiscal intermediary, you know, gets on board, uh, full, full board. And Mr. Chairman, to echo the, the director, we're absolutely willing to, to take action and investigate those kinds of situations. Thank you for your testimony, Mr. Alexander. Sure. Are there any, is there any other business to come before the committee? Seeing none, we're adjourned. And thanks for listening to the Public of Pharmacists podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.